have a Bible, we're going to be continuing on in our series through the Gospel according to Matthew, and we're going to be looking at the first part of chapter 4 this morning. Um, If you don't have a Bible, there should be one under one of the seats near you, and if you don't own a Bible, there's a bookshelf in the foyer that has Bibles and other resources back there. Um, Just pick up anything that's of interest to you. We're just really glad that you are here this morning. We're going to look at... uh, a passage that uh, all three of the synoptic gospels, that's Matthew, Mark, and Luke, give an account of, and it's in the same place in all three of these gospels, and it's one of the few instances in the gospel where there are no eyewitnesses to this account. So this is something that our Lord himself would have had to communicate to his disciples. All the other stories, there were eyewitnesses around, but this is something that the Lord would have had to, told, to have told his disciples. And to me, that lets me know that this is something really significant that the Lord wanted us to know of his life. You ever hear these whispers in your head? If God really loves you and cares for you, Would you be going through this right now? Or look, you've waited long enough for God to come through. Maybe it's time just to take matters into your own hands. And yeah, you may have to fudge a little bit or compromise a little bit, but hey, you've been waiting so long, I don't think God really is going to come through for you. Ever heard those whispers in your ears? When circumstances hit in your life and they're just overwhelming and you look around and say, what in the world, God, is going on? And it's been my experience that often when one of those circumstances come, then two or three follow right after that. And you're like, really? Not only do I have to deal with this, but I've got to deal with this and this as well? How do you respond to those whispers? Or maybe they're louder than whispers. Maybe they're shouts in your head. We're going to look at a passage this morning where Jesus is responding to similar voices. And I'm going to read this passage, and then we're going to talk a little bit about it, starting in verse 1 of Matthew chapter 4. Let me start back in verse 16 of chapter 3 to give you a little bit of context. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting forty days and forty nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you're the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, 
You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is a reading of God's word. This is a a section that I've just been thinking about a ton, and to me there's so much richness in here, and there's so much that we need to pull out of this text, and there's so many levels and layers at which this speaks and should speak to us. Again, to me, this is one of these texts that Jesus wanted us as his followers to know. It was just him and the tempter out in the wilderness, in the solitude. Tim, you want to put a picture of the wilderness up there? We looked at this last week, but this is the area kind of where Jesus was. Not a very comfortable, easy, nice area to be in. And Jesus Notice he's led by the Spirit out into the wilderness. The same Spirit that just descended on him like a dove and and the Father says, you're my beloved Son. Man, I really love you. I am so pleased with you. And then right after that, following the Spirit, he heads out into the wilderness and he's fasting for 40 days and for 40 nights. I looked up how long can a human body survive without food, just with water. And it's kind of unethical to test that, right? But in Northern Ireland, when the prisoners were protesting against the British control of that area, a lot of prisoners went on hunger fasts. And those guys, I guess they did not rescue them, but they died anywhere from 46 to 73 days. So you think about Jesus, he's been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. He is about at the edge of where a human body can tolerate and continue to function. So he's out in this desert and it says that the Holy Spirit led him out there to be tempted by the devil. And that word tempt, it's an interesting word. It's a word in English, tempt, that seems kind of just negative, right? You're being tempted to do something wrong. But the word in Greek is a word that you can also be tempted to do what is right, and we'd never use the word in that way. So some of your translations may translate it test. He's led out by the Spirit to be tested by the devil. James 1.13 says the Lord does not tempt anybody, but it's pretty clear in Scripture that the Lord does test us. Why are we tested? You Navy pilots out there, you're up flying around and you're being tested all the time. Why are you being tested? You're being tested to reveal what you know and who you are and if you have the ability to not kill people in the future when you're in this airplane and if you fail that test, it's not given so that you would fail, but it's given to point out, yeah, you will be able to do this in the future without killing people or maybe you need to work on this a little bit more so you don't kill people in the future. A test reveals who we are and most of us, we don't like tests. You know, there's a few school nerds. It's like, oh, I can't wait for the test. I know I'm going to ace that. I'm going to get 100. I'm going to be the star, right? I'm going to ruin the curve for everybody. But most of us, the test is like, no, that's not a pleasant thing. But it does show us what we know, and it does reveal who we really are, right? And so 
the Spirit, the same Spirit that just descended on Jesus, anointed him. He is King Jesus, the Messiah. We talked about that. He's the ruler. John is the one that's pointing to him and says, this is the guy that's going to take away the sins of the world. This is King Jesus. You need to repent. You need to change your mind. You're thinking about who's running your life, right? It's King Jesus, and King Jesus is led by the Spirit out into the wilderness to be tested slash tempted by the devil. And he's fasting this, this whole time. And at first as I looked at that, man, that, he's going to be really, really weak. And that's true in one way. Physically, he will be super, super weak at this point in time. But I don't think he's fasting to get to that point of physical weakness. He's fasting so that he has spiritual strength to face the test that he knew the Holy Spirit had led him out into the desert for. So he's alone with God. He's fasting, right? He's drawing his strength from his father and his relationship with the father at this point in time. Remember the story in John's gospel in chapter four, he meets the Samaritan woman at the well and the disciples all go into town for chow. They come back out and Jesus is talking with a woman which was scandalous at that time and she's a Samaritan, doubly scandalous. And he's like, you know, do you need lunch? And he's like, no, I've got food that you know nothing about. My food is to do the will of my father and to accomplish his work. So Jesus is out there fasting, but it's not, he's really weak at this time. Yes, physically he is really weak, but I think he's super spiritually strong because he knew what was coming. And to me, this story has several levels. Do you remember any other story in scripture where a tempter is involved with food, trying to kind of throw some shade on what God has communicated his son is really? And it takes you all the way back to the garden, right? To that story in the garden where the first Adam He's in a place of abundance. He can eat everything except one fruit. And here we have Jesus, our Savior, nothing to eat for 40 days. So Adam, the first Adam, with all that abundance, falls and fails miserably. And here we have the last Adam, or the second Adam, that is in a circumstance that's a lot more difficult. And what happens to him? He passes with glorious marks. So we have that level of the story. But then there's another level. Do you know any other son of God that was maybe down in Egypt that went through the waters and then was out in the wilderness for 40 years? Right? That was God's son. Exodus 4.22. The Lord says, Israel is my son and I took my son and I'm going to take my son out of Egypt. So here we have Jesus kind of reenacting what the Israelites did and and how well did they do when they were out in the wilderness? Not really well, right? They they failed miserably too, right? So here we have Jesus out in the wilderness and the tempter comes to him and says, hey, if you're God's son, I know you're really hungry right now. Tell these stones to become loaves of bread. And the primary assault wasn't on the status of Jesus as God's son. It's almost like, since you're God's son, tell these stones to become loaves of bread. Hey, you're God's son. Didn't he just say he loved you? 
Aren't you the anointed Messiah, the coming king? Aren't you the one that has all this power? And you're out here in the midst of this God-forsaken wilderness? Make some bread. And I think often in temptations for believers, they're not temptations to do something horrible, something immoral. Is making bread something bad if you're hungry? No. Any other time in Jesus' life where he multiplied loaves and fishes, right? Any time where he turned some water into wine? Yeah, so Jesus has the power to do this, right? And, and supplying his physical needs seems like that's legitimate. It's been 40 days, right? And, and he's hungry right now. And I think the first temptation Jesus is facing here is to doubt God's love and care when we face difficult circumstances. And here there are physical needs that, that come up. And it's a very legitimate need for Jesus. And the question is, does Jesus trust the Father and the Father's timing to meet his needs at this point in his life? And when Jesus responds, he quotes from Deuteronomy 8. So if you want to turn back there, it's interesting. All of Jesus' quotes of the scripture in this temptation are from Deuteronomy 6 through 8. It's kind of as if he was meditating out there on this section of scripture. And this is Moses giving the law once again right before the people were going to enter into the promised land. And I'm going to read this passage because I think it really informs what's going on out in the desert there with Jesus. Starting in verse 1 of Deuteronomy 8, the whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what is in your heart. And that's the same word in the Greek translation of the Old Testament that we have here in Matthew 4, testing you to know what's in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. And he humbled you and he let you hunger and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, so the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and fearing him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks and water, of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land which you will eat bread without scarcity and which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he's given you. What is he saying? You're in the wilderness right now, but the good stuff is really, really coming. So keep trusting the Lord. Keep depending on you. He has led you in this way and he's let you get hungry. Why? To humble you and to test you and to see what's really in your heart. Again, how did the Israelites do with these tests? 
They failed miserably, right? God takes them out of Egypt, you know, they're all the plagues. God's taken down the gods of Egypt. He brings them through the Red Sea. Every day they're eating manna and they get out there and they can't find water and they're like, God, what, Moses, what do you bring us out here for? To kill us? I can't believe this kind of stuff. We'd be better off back in Egypt. And Moses is like, these people are ready to kill me. And look at what you did. And they tested the Lord. They tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord among us or not? I don't even think God's here anymore. He's done all that stuff. Yeah, maybe the man is still coming, but I, I, I don't see evidence of him in my life. You know, and it's easy to judge those people. You know, I miss lunch and I get hangry and I act poorly towards people around me because I've missed one meal, right? And it's easy to judge. Try having a backache for four months and see if something doesn't come out of your mouth like curse God and die, man. I'm just, I'm just I can't believe this is going on. It's interesting in the testing of Job that the final thing was the tempter was allowed to afflict his body with something physical. And Jesus is dealing with something physical here. He's really, really hungry and exhausted. But he turns to this and he says, I know what you were doing in the desert, in the wilderness with your son before. You were disciplining him. You were teaching him something. What? To depend on your word more than even on your physical sustenance. And Jesus here, he recognizes that, he says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. He's not saying, well, Bible study is more important than bread. <laughs> Obviously, we need to eat, right? But he's saying that there's life that's found, and it's found not just in the physical. We can exist in this world, right? We can exist like an animal, we can eat and exist and procreate and do all that kind of stuff and just keep going. But Jesus is saying that's not really where life is found. Life, a sense of meaning and purpose and dignity is found when I listen to the word of God that tells me I'm valuable, I'm important, I'm significant. Why? Because God has set his love on me and I'm created in his image. So Jesus says, hey, there's something more than my satisfying my hunger right now, and that's my being obedient and trusting God at his word that he's going to take care of me. And when he wants me to have bread, he'll provide bread for me. And even if he chooses not to, I'm still going to trust in him because my life is not bound up in this world. It's bound up in the truth of what he said. What did Job say? Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. And folks, one thing I really want us all to know is that when we start to follow Jesus, Jesus is anointed by the Spirit, he's led by the Spirit, and then life becomes really difficult. And we live in a culture where it says, if you're following God, if you're led by the Spirit, then life somehow should be really easy. That is not true. Jesus shows us that sometimes when we are following the Spirit, it gets more difficult. Going with the flow, just going what, whatever, that is the easy way to go. 
But following God and following his word sometimes is a really, really difficult path. And it's hard. And it hurts. And we feel it. So what in your life right now is that hunger? What is that thing that the evil one is whispering in your ear? Hey, if God really loved you, you wouldn't be so hungry in this area right now. Tests will come. And Jesus is showing us that any time we face that test and we say yes to his voice and no to all those voices and those desires in us that may be screaming out to be satisfied, that is victory. That we're not just material girls that are living in a material world, right? (laughs) (laughs) That we are designed for a relationship with God. And so do I trust the Father to satisfy my legitimate needs in His timing and in His way? So that's the first test, to doubt God's goodness in the face of really hard circumstances. The second test I see here is when we attempt to manipulate God to get Him to do what we want by twisting His Word. And the tempter, verse 3, came to him and said, If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And Jesus says, It's written, right? So Jesus responds with the written word of God to the first temptation. Then the devil's like, Ooh, two can play that game. Then the devil took him to the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And I think this isn't a visionary experience because later on he's on the top of a mountain and he sees the glory of all the kingdoms of the world. Not even on Everest are you going to see all the kingdoms of the world. So I think this is a visionary experience. Just been reading through Ezekiel and Ezekiel's in Babylon, but God takes him in a vision to the temple and goes through all the temple there. So I think that's what's happening here. But he takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple And he quotes from Psalm 91. Hey, the scriptures say, God's going to take care of you. So, jump down. Make a splash. Make sure that tomorrow you're on the cover of the Jerusalem Times and it's like, son of God rescued by angels from falling off the temple. That'd be awesome when it would prove that you're the son of God, right? The evil one can quote scriptures well. But he so often takes them out of context. Someone said a text out of context is a pretext for a proof text. So the reality is, if you look at the Bible, you can make the Bible, if you take something out of context, say almost anything you want. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we will die. That's in scripture, right? saying basically don't live like that, but if we cut it off at a certain point, hey, doesn't it say that? Everything's permissible. Yeah, it says that. Not everything's beneficial. I'm not going to let myself be enslaved by anything, but everything's permissible, right? Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Well, I really want that 5,000 square foot house on the side of a rocky mountain with a trout stream below and hot springs in the back and that's what, yep, so... So what do I got to do to get that? Somehow I got to delight myself in the Lord. So what? what? And we, we twist Scripture to get what we want out of it instead of looking at Scripture and saying, this is an opportunity to worship and know 
my Lord and Savior in the midst of all of this. And Jesus, he quotes from Deuteronomy 6, the same section of Scripture here. Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. If you read Psalm 91, it's this beautiful song of dependence on God where someone makes God their refuge, where they trust in God, where they're walking with God. And if you're doing that, then God is saying, I'm going to take care of you in this. It's not, man, you can go out on I-10 and you can drive 100 miles an hour going the wrong way and God's got to keep everybody from hitting you. That's not what God is promising in that psalm. It says, if you walk with the Lord, he will be with you until he takes you home. And there's going to come a time where he takes us home, right? There's believers in North Korea, in Sudan, in China that are in prison now and are dying because they're being true to Jesus. But they're trusting him and he's going to bring them home. That's the point, that God has got us, and I say we're immortal until God wants us to die if we're walking with him. If we do all this crazy stuff and say, God, prove yourself to me. Prove it. And to me, this is a lot, unfortunately, of American Christianity. We'll take a verse here or take a verse there and say, you know, you're a child of the king. That's true. You're a son or daughter of the king. But then they take that, well, you should be living like a king or queen right now, right? So that means what? A whole lot of cash in the bank and everything going well in life and never getting sick and never getting into any kind of difficult situation or things that would test you. Is that what the scripture's saying? No. Jesus does promise us the abundant life, right? But it's all in how we define that life. Is that a rich relationship with him or is it a rich amount of stuff all around us? And we can twist scripture to get what we want out of it. That's why we need to know the word, the whole counsel of God's word. That's why I'm committed to going through this book passage by passage so that we know the whole counsel. So when one of those lies comes up, we can say, yeah, it says that there, but what about this? There's balance in that. And if you ever find yourself, oh, this is where I think it goes, talk to somebody else around you that knows the word as well. We're called to be in community. And if you're the only one in the history of the church that has taken this passage in a particular way, you may want to say, ah, I may need to reevaluate how I'm looking at this, right? Especially when it, coincides with our desires and our wants. So be students of the word of God. And then the third test here. It's the temptation to get what we want, even what may be promised to us, but to use an ungodly method or means to get that. The devil, the slanderer, takes Jesus up and back to Jerusalem, and now he takes him up onto this high mountain vision, and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. And he says, hey, I know the path that your father has laid out for you, 
That path involves a cross. It involves self-sacrifice. It involves pain and difficulty and heartache and loving people that are stubborn and stupid. You know what? I can give you all that without having to go through that. There's an easier way to get to where you want to be. It's the ends justify the means kind of a temptation. And he says, all these I will give to you. And scholars debate whether that's a lie or whether there is some truth in that. Seven times in the New Testament at least, the evil one, the slanderer, the devil, the tempter is called the ruler of this world. And to me, you look at this character in this passage and a lot of us, you know, we envision a guy with a you know, red suit and a little tail and stuff. like. That's not at all the picture of Satan in Scripture. And because that's how he's pictured so many in our modern world, say, yeah, just, that's a whole bunch of nonsense. That's never the picture of Satan in here right? We're not maybe even told where this being comes from. There's a couple passages. One is in Isaiah 14 and one is in Ezekiel 28 that deal with human kings. One's the king of Babylon and one's the king of Tyre. And it seems to describe those human kings in a way that doesn't really apply. And some will say that is the origin of Satan, that he was one of these cherubim that are closest to God. And because of his pride, he, he fell. That's a possibility. But When Satan shows up in the scriptures, he just shows up, right? It's a perfect creation, and then all of a sudden, there's this tempter, there's this serpent that's casting doubt on the goodness of God. It's like, he's holding back on you, man. There's something really, really good that he's not giving you, and we're not told where this being comes from. As Christians, we wrestle with that, and you know, to me, you need to recognize that scripture's not doesn't give us answers to every intellectual question that we may have. doesn't tell us the source of evil, but it tells us what God is doing about that evil. And that's what we're seeing right here. Jesus Christ has come to be that perfect Adam, to be the perfect son of God, facing these temptations down and emerging victorious in every way where we fail in almost every way, ultimately defeating the evil one through the cross and his sacrifice for us. And at the end, Jesus says, it's almost like the devil overplays his hand. Just like, get out of here. Get the hell out of here, literally. And he just leaves. There's one other time that Jesus says almost the exact same thing. In Matthew 16, remember? Peter, that great confession. You're the Christ! And then Jesus says, hey, the Christ has got to die. All this stuff's got to happen to him. And Peter's like, whoa, whoa, come here, Jesus. Have you not read Psalm 2? We read it this morning. The King Messiah, he doesn't die. He's victorious. He takes down every enemy, right? And we're going to be in your, you know, in your entourage here, you know, maybe first or second in your kingdom, either place. I'll be okay with that. But the king doesn't die. And Jesus says what? Get behind me, Satan. It's a lie from the pit. Why? Because the Father had said the way that you win your kingdom is through giving your life for all those that are going to be participants and members and citizens in your kingdom. And Jesus recognized that and he recognizes it here and it's like, Satan, you've overplayed your hand. I am not going to worship you. Get out of here. And he leaves. 
and you look at these temptations and it's like, wow, Jesus, he's amazing, and he is. And, and I look at myself and it's like, man, how often can I get pushed into this that, God, I've got these legitimate needs. I, I need this job and I'm just gonna tweak the resume a little bit. I'm gonna adjust things a little bit. Or you've promised to meet my need for loneliness and I'm gonna fudge a little bit on, on how you're gonna do that because that's a legitimate, and the goal is good, right? I know you want me happy. And I think ultimately God does want us all happy. In his presence, fullness of joy and his right hand pleasures forevermore. That's what's coming. That's the passage in Deuteronomy 18 saying stay true even as God disciplines you. And we hear discipline as punishment. God's whacking. No, that's not. Discipline is growing you up. Jesus learned what? Obedience through what he suffered. He's out there suffering and Jesus is fully man and fully God and here in his humanity it's being tested and he's growing him to be fully committed to God. And Jesus, unlike the first Adam, he passes all the tests. And unlike us, he passes all the tests. And so Jesus wins the duel in the desert. And Luke says that the evil one, the slanderer, Satan means adversary. The adversary leaves him for a more appropriate time. And we see that several times in Jesus' ministry. Again, I think, especially in the Garden of Gethsemane. Where he's like, God, I, this is what I know your will from me is, but I, is there another way? And at that point in time, he's soliciting his disciples. He says, watch and pray with me. Come on, guys. And what do they do? They fail miserably, Right? <laughs> But the reality is that Jesus, he was tempted in every way that we are. And the book of Hebrews lets us know that we have a high priest that can sympathize with us when we're going through it. So as we look at this, to me, a couple things really need to stand out. To recognize that when difficulties come in life, that that testing, that temptation, it's it's not sinful. It doesn't mean you're outside of God's will. In fact, you may be right in the heart of God's will where he's saying, okay, I'm bringing you through this to show you something about who you are and to reveal something about who I am to help you to recognize that you don't have to be so dependent on this world that there's gonna come a time in life sometimes where you've gotta say no to your own desires and yes to what God wants. And when we do that, that's a really beautiful thing and we recognize, you know what, that's what life is all about and he gives us life and purpose and meaning in the midst of that. There's some sensitive souls out there that just being tempted, they feel like they've already blown it. This lets me know that temptation is going to be the lot of all of us as believers. That's just the reality. There's going to be testing that comes, and that's not outside of the will of God, but that's part of his will and part of his instructing us to learn how to depend on him. And I know there's a lot of folks in here because I talk to a lot of folks that are overwhelmed, as Brian said, with life. There's really hard stuff that happens to Christians. It's really hard. Yet somehow, in some way, God is wanting us in the midst of that to say, okay, this, this is really hard, Jesus, but I want to follow you in the midst of this. I want to stay true to you. I want to know you in the midst of this. And man, I'm hungry, and man, I'm hurting, but you are more to me 
than that. And I want to keep following you in the midst of all of this. And those voices will come. Really? You're God's daughter? You're God's son? And this is what you're going through in life? Really? You've been waiting how long for God to meet that need? And he hasn't yet? How do you respond when those voices hit? Because I can guarantee you they will hit. And how Jesus responded was with the word, right? This is what life is. My relationship with God and I'm going to trust him in the midst of this difficulty. But the beauty of this passage also lets me know that though I fail and fail regularly, Jesus hasn't. And he's the one I depend on in the midst of all this difficulty in life. And also I see in here ultimately that, that push back against the evil one. Both James and Peter say, resist, push back. Don't listen to those whispers when they come in your head. Depend on the truth of God's word that says, yes, you're my son or my daughter and I know it's hard right now, but there is something coming that's going to make all of this seem light and momentary and I know it doesn't seem light and momentary right now, but keep pushing into me because it's going to be worth it. And am I going to hang on to that? Or am I going to say, man, relief can be found if I just fudge a little bit here or go a little bit there or do things in my own way and God says, no, keep following me. It's going to be worth it. It's going to be. I know it's hard, but you know what? I'm walking right through the situation with you, and I've been in that situation. I've been in that time where every desire in me said, do what I want to do, and God says, not yet. And I think we need regularly, before we get in those difficult situations, to seek to connect with God. If we think when that temptation hits or that testing hits, that right at that moment, it's like, man, I'm going to pass this test, great. You know, Tim's a professor. How do you like students that like the day before you give a major exam, are like, okay, I haven't studied anything all along, so I'm going to cram it in here, right? <laughs> Probably not going to really do well on one of Dr. Roy Alpha's tests. Dr. Heilman, too, never use the Scantron, always the essay test. Ooh, those are the ones, especially in the hard sciences where you can't really fudge around and can't guess and all. That's what reveals, and it's like, how do we prepare for that? We prepare for it by studying a little bit every day until that exam comes. And I see in Jesus out in the desert for 40 days fasting. What is he doing? He's preparing his heart for this testing that's going to come. He says, yes, I may be physically weak, but I am spiritually strong now because I'm out here in silence and solitude and meditation drawing on the strength of my God. And so if we think we're going to pass these tests just by like, oh, when it comes, it'll hit there. I'm not, not really into spending any time in the Word or praying or doing any of that kind of stuff. But hey, you know, I'm good with God. And I think God has some opportunities to wake us up to that reality sometimes when we fall flat on our face. And he says, okay, are you ready to listen now? Because the beauty of this scripture is that Jesus is the only one that passed. But when I trust in him, somehow his passing grade gets put on my report card. And that's a beautiful thing. But you know what? I want to participate with Jesus in this process. I want to be victorious too. And it's going to take 
some work. It's going to take some delighting in the Lord. It's going to take some fasting. To me, it's one of those disciplines like, oh, we don't do that here. And it's like, but to me, fasting is one of the best ways, especially as you deal with sins of the flesh, to defeat some of those sins of the flesh because you're saying no to what your flesh desires for something even better. And it's learning to feast on God instead of your initial desires. And I know that's totally counterculture. We live in a culture where it says, whatever desire you have, man, you're not living unless you're living that out. And Jesus says, that is not where you find life. Man does not, woman does not live by bread alone, by satisfying those desires that you have for physical life alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. This is an amazing test that Jesus passes. And he's victorious. And he will continue to pass those tests to the ultimate test on the cross. He will die. And Colossians 2 says he triumphed over all the forces of evil by the cross. And we look around and some of you are like, ah, I don't believe in this devil thing. You know, it's like, okay, yeah, maybe not a guy with a pitchfork and looking like a cartoon character. But to me, there is a force of evil in this world and you just need to look around. You need to read the news. It's read about some guy that tortured his father to death and I'm like, what in the world is going on here? And I was like, over in Mobile. I'm like, what in the world? And then you look at the last century and you look... In Ephesians, it says, you know, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and rulers in the heavenly places. And you look at the last century and you say, this was the bloodiest century in history. And why? Because a lot of human beings were saying, we're going to make utopia. We just may have to kill 10, 20, 30 million people in the process of bringing utopia in. And if you look at that and cannot see an evil force behind that that's greater than just people making stupid decisions, I'm sorry, there's something evil in this world. And that's what Jesus has defeated. And when we're with him, we can defeat that as well. But we've got to abide and dwell with him in that. So are you with Jesus? Stand if you would, and I'm going to just close with reading a passage from 1 Peter. Listen to the words of the Holy Spirit through Peter, his apostle. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. And all God's people said, 